Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. Now, one of the reasons I set this podcast up in the first place was to meet CMOs from successful brands to see what we can learn from their experience. And my next guest, Ed Pilkington, who is CMO of Diageo North America, oversees some of the most famous brands in the world. Brands like Guinness, Bailey's, Johnny Walker. These are super, super successful brands that we all drink regularly and will have heard of and seen some amazing marketing from. Now, it's a big portfolio of brands, so I wanted to find out from Ed, how do you manage such a big portfolio? How do you innovate and stay relevant? What are the trends and fashions in the drinks business that they are spotting and doing? Um, What are his big failures? I mean, I bring a few in this episode, which you'll enjoy, but what are the successes and how do you become a great CMO on successful brands? So I really enjoyed this conversation. It's a proper CMO conversation this. Here's my conversation with Ed Pilkington. Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks, great to be here. Thanks for yeah. inviting me. Well, I'm really excited about this. We get to talk about drinks. So it's a really fun category, isn't it? And, and of course, you've been, uh, you've got an illustrious marketing career over many years, worked in many markets on many brands in Diageo. But tell me how it came about. Where, how, why drinks and why marketing? Well, very simple, actually. You know, it's been a, it's been a great career. I've been very lucky. Um, but really simple. When I was at university, I was thinking, what do I want to do with my life and my career? And I quite like the idea of selling things and persuading people to buy things, basically. And I didn't really know a lot about it. I researched, I did a sort of liberal arts degree, as they would say over here, uh, politics, economics, languages, all that stuff. But I was interested in generally human behavior and why people buy things and the business world. Uh, so that was the first thing. So I wanted to get into marketing, gend up on it. And the second thing was I wanted to work on brands that I loved. And at the time, I particularly loved Guinness and I drank it, obviously, responsibly as a student. Um, <laughs> but I, I like Guinness. And Guinness had an amazing training program as well. So when I sort of investigated they had a fantastic training program. It was like a mini MBA, basically. The other thing I wanted to do was I'd lived abroad, so I'd already lived in Spain and Mexico. So I really wanted to work internationally. So my goal was kind of to sell things around the world, basically. So And Guinness gave me an opportunity to basically do exactly that and immediately put me into a, a job where I was working in Central America, Caribbean and stuff like that. So it was great. Well, I want to pick up on two things you said there. So the first thing is, if I were to think of a company that's really well known for the quality of its marketers, the quality of its training, it'd probably be Diageo. And, you know, a lot of people aspire to work at Diageo. A lot of people who have been at Diageo have gone on to be very successful. What is it that Diageo does that produces such good marketers and marketing? Well, I think, first thing, we have a, a decent amount of rigor, I think, around our, our training. You know, we have what we call the Diageo way of brand building. And we're on to, I think, you know, version, I don't know, 6.0 or something like that. But we've evolved it. So that basically started when Diageo became Diageo, which was about 97, 98. The first thing we did was actually, and it was two businesses, Guinness and Grand Met, coming together. Well, there was a need to actually have one language, basically, for the business. And actually, it's why it's been successful, because many mergers aren't successful. Why it's been successful, because the vision was to create a new company. This was a distinct company. It wasn't. It was taking the best of both companies. And both companies were decent brand builders, but they were quite different. One was very innovative. One was quite good at sort of category management. And this was about starting afresh. And the Diageo brand building was a way of putting language around what we did and, t- and you know, processes, basically, around what we did. And the other thing around Diageo brand building was it was all about the consumer. So it started. So the first, literally the first module in the first Diageo brand building was about consumer driven strategy and how you start by understanding the consumer. And then a big piece about that was insight. So actually really, you know, educating basically all of our people around the importance of understanding consumers and insights. And we have a definition of an insight, which is a penetrating discovery around consumer behavior, which unlocks growth and all this stuff. So everything kind of starts with the consumer. And then we built out lots of programs about how we do our marketing, basically. And we've evolved it, obviously, as the world has evolved 
over the last 20 years. Uh, so it was great. And look, I was lucky. I was a junior marketer at the time. It's great. So I, I was lucky to see it and have seen it evolved. So I think that was the first piece about that. The other big piece is we've got great people. So if you get great talent and then train them well, hopefully you're great, great marketing. Yeah. And we also work in an industry which is an industry which people enjoy. We have great brands. We have brands which people connect with emotionally. Uh, and look, it's a, it's a decent margin business as well. So operating in a, in a category where we have decent margins allows us to invest behind our brands, to build our brands. If you've got that and you've got some funds to invest behind your brands, the responsibility of the marketers is to invest that money brilliantly and make sure you, you develop great work and great plans, basically. We're talking about penetrating insights that drive growth. Uh, you and I share uh, a bit of history in terms of both working on Tia Pepe. And I remember a lovely bit of insight that Fiona, my boss at the time, came up with, which is food tastes better with Tia Pepe. And it's amazing. I, I couldn't believe it, actually. But obviously, being a Spanish brand, tapas being spicy food. But genuinely, t- you know, food actually tastes better when you did a kind of side-by-side comparison with Tia Pepe. Amazing insight there. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, um, yeah, no, for, I mean, for everyone out there, I, we talked about before, I worked on Sherry. So when Diageo became Diageo, uh, I was working on, on Sherry. Uh, we had Croft and Gonzalez Bias. We had a lovely partnership with Gonzalez Bias. We decided to exit because strategically it wasn't where we were going as a business. Teal Pepper is an amazing brand. I actually still think it's an amazing brand. And, but the insight around actually the right drinks with food is so appropriate now. And if actually one of the most interesting things is if you look at why spirits are growing here in North America and in certain parts of the world, it's actually because more people are drinking spirits with food. And a lot of people ask me, why is tequila booming? Obviously, we've got some great tequila brands. And there's many reasons about why tequila is booming. Uh, Part of it is it's a white spirit and a dark spirit. You've got both. Big part actually is food. Uh, You think about the rise of Mexican food in North America and the US, which is huge. And what do you drink when you go to a Mexican restaurant? Very often you drink tequila, you drink a margarita, you drink a paloma. And actually, and they go brilliantly with food. So if you go back to the insight, finding as Tio Pepe did as a very dry wine, which is brilliant with tapas, finding the right drink to go with food is really critical. And actually, interestingly, I think what we're seeing as well is the big trend at the moment, back to sort of insights, is more people are almost snacking. So there's, you know, smaller plates. You go to restaurants and you get smaller plates, which actually allows you to mix and get clear about what you want to drink. So, yeah, that, that, that marriage of drink and food is, is still critical, as it was when you and I were both, both selling sherry a yeah, few years yeah, ago. Yeah, young we, lads working we, on we, sherry. We, we were young men. <laughs> exactly. But t- talking about food, uh, one of the things that strikes me about your career is it's very international. You've been in a lot of places. Talk about Caribbean. I mean, I-, I imagine if you talk to a young marketer, where do you want to kind of cut your teeth? Caribbean would be quite high up there. But, you know, nice nice destinations aside. Um, what did you learn uh, as you went around the globe marketing in different countries? And does an international kind of career help you become a better marketer? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I really wanted to because I've got a, I suppose I was curious about the world and Candidly, I've, I've, Diageo's paid for me to travel and see the world, so I'm very grateful. Hopefully, I've you know returned that a little bit in terms of how I've, what I've delivered for them. But um, but I've been very fortunate. But I think what it does, I always talk to people about similarities and differences. You know, as humans, you know, we always talk about this, and this is on our dweeb training. We are 99.9% the same in terms of how we are made up. Basically, the differences really are where we grow up and those cultural differences and nuances. So if you tap into a human insight, so think about a brand like Johnny Walker, which has always been about progress and people's desire to progress. What progress means and what it meant 20 years ago is different now, but there's a pretty global insight because there is a human need to desire to progress in life. But how that shows up is a bit different around the world. And I often say to people, it's just like, back to actually the food piece. 
food trends are slightly different in different places. What people eat and drink is different. How, you know, what people have for breakfast is different in different countries. It's just those funny little nuances and the cultural, the cultural, what people watch in terms of sort of, you know, I mean, entertainment's getting much more global in some respects, but even sporting, you know, how sport plays out, all those kind of cultural pieces are different. So I think it's understanding the cultural nuances and being able to adapt to those cultural nuances and understand those when you're in different markets but also understanding there's a lot which is the same because humans are fundamentally, you know, 99% the same, basically. It makes a lot of sense. It's funny, actually, because you reminded me talking about Johnny Walker. So a very random fact here. My grandfather was sponsored by Johnny Walker. He, I know, he, um, he was a walker, right? And, and he set the Guinness World Record for the most amount of money raised by walking. So he, he used to raise a lot of sponsorship. But the, the one I remember was when I was quite a young lad, but he walked the coastline of Great Britain which apparently is 4,444 miles. And he timed his finish in central London for 12.34 on the 5th of the 6th. Uh, now, hang on, 5th of the 6th. Hang on, it was 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. But anyway, he literally had this massive clock. It was, 12, it was 12.34, 56 seconds on the 7th of the 8th, 1990. That's it, 1990. That's, That's it. And he was sponsored by Johnny Walker. And he worked out, he walked, he had a statistic about miles to the gallon of whiskey, that he, that he was able to cover. But, yes. And he, li- he lived to be 100, almost 102, actually. So to, I'm, not, I'm not sure we um, talk about the miles again. Talk about progress, but, but anyway, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Did it, did it, did it. I know. But, uh, that's extraordinary. Yeah, I know. Extraordinary I, guy. It was, it was funny, actually, when, after he passed away, only a couple of years ago, um, you know, we, we were, we, you know, one thing we were fighting over was the kind of signed Johnny Walker bottle, you know. Like, who's going to get, you know, who's going to get the, uh, well, you know. The, 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 I wonder if that's in our archive. It might be, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. we have a fantastic archive up in Scotland, yeah. which is our like museum to our brands. And in that we have all these amazing feats and what's been done. And the guys who are up there who run it are uh, amazing. So Christine, yeah. Joe and the team. And they do a fantastic job, actually. They've got the history of our brand. So I could be there. I, I, it could I, be. I, I'll Who knows? Yeah. I, I, I have to pay a visit and just yeah, check exactly, it all out. Yeah. Maybe I can bring the memorabilia yeah, well, with that's me. that's right, actually. Adds the collection. Joking apart, if you wanted a home for it, if you're all, you know, yeah. we'd very happily probably take it and put yeah. it in the archives. So, yeah, no, yeah. that'd be fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, listen, you're on Nonsense to CMO. So let's talk a bit about, about, about CMO. Um, you've obviously reached a very senior position in your career. What makes a great CMO? So I think, I think the first thing is you've got to be... Uh, I mean, you've got to love building brands. I think there's a piece about have a fascination and a curiosity about building brands and why you love building brands. I mean, I'm fascinated about why people choose brands, how you build brands. So I think you've got to be generally interested in that. I think you've got to be interested in the world, what's going on. I think you've got to be interested in innovation and everything that's going on, tech, all that sort of stuff. So there's a piece about that. So I think sort of fascination in brands and therefore consumers, I think, is really important. I think you've got to be interested in business. So it's not just about developing great creative. You've got to be a business leader. You've got to sit on an executive team when you're a CMO. And it is about actually shaping business strategy. Business strategy that's driven from an understanding of what's going on in the world, the big trends. So all your business strategies, you start with the big macro trends, what's going out there from wellness to indulgence to whatever, luxury, whatever, affordable luxury, all those big trends that we talk about. So the ability to sit on an executive team and shape strategy and shape business strategy and take it forward, I think, is is really important. And then I think there's a big piece, which is I often say one of my sort of mantras is I don't know if I've got many mantras, but a mantra I have is one foot in today and one foot in tomorrow. You know, the one foot in tomorrow is absolutely about shaping the future. It's we should be spending half or more of our day always thinking about what next, you know, the out there, the three, five and beyond sort of uh, what's going on, what's going on in the world and how we shape that in terms of our brands, in terms of our innovation agenda, portfolio management, all of that good stuff, the consumer, uh, because some stuff takes a while to, to bring to fruition. 
But we're also business leaders and we have to make sure that what we are doing, so the brands we are running are delivering in the here and now. And we're learning and understanding and we've got the right measurement. So, so I'd say, yeah, brands, consumer understanding, business leadership, inspirational leadership, and shaping strategy at an executive level. Um, and then it varies whether you're a single brand company or a multi-brand company in terms of how you do that. Yeah. I, I like what you say about business, actually, because the biggest change I noticed was you go from being sort of a functional specialist where you're doing the marketing, and then you find yourself in a kind of cross-functional role where actually it's about business strategy and leadership. And actually the marketing bit becomes actually a smaller part of the job, doesn't it? And it's more about your influence on the business overall. Very, very much so. I mean, I think a big part of my role is actually, I'd say, portfolio management and obviously working with our CEO and, and FD, CFO, etc. But I mean, if you take our portfolio, so one, there is a bit about what brands do we want to market? You know, it comes down to back to strategy. Which categories do you want to play in? And when categories get hot, so I mentioned tequila earlier, tequila is a hot category. 10 years ago, Diageo, we hardly participated in tequila. We had a distribution deal with Jose Cuervo. We now own two of the hottest brands in tequila in Don Julio and, and Casamigos. And we've done some other plays. So being conscious about where you want to participate and then how you do that, how you either build a brand which might be in your portfolio, acquire a brand, whatever, innovate into a new space, etc., is a huge part. And then candidly, make sure you've got brilliant brand teams to run those brands and then make sure you are supporting those brand teams and you candidly have the right rhythm of conversation with the brand teams around the marketing. So I think it is so a big part in my role is really making sure we've got the right portfolio. So that's a big piece. Uh, and then actually very much, I think the, what's great is the ability to take a step back and look across, if you even think creative development, making sure we've got great work which drives performance. The ability to sit back and look across the portfolio is one of the things I like and look at the quality of the work and candidly look at the quality of work coming out of the different teams. I have four big category teams and you look at the work and what's going on and, and your job is to support, help, push, cajole, all that type of stuff to make sure that they're writing brilliant plans and the great work. And then making sure we're back to my one foot in now, one foot in tomorrow. We've got teams in place. So I've got a team who purely look at culture. So we've got a, a brands and culture team. I've got a, you know, a digital media tech, you know, we in-house quite a lot of stuff. That team, how do I support that team to make sure we're always looking at the what next, basically? Yeah. So, you know, so it's that broader stuff. Basically. Yeah, no, that's that quite a challenge with a big portfolio and a big team. And, and obviously Diageo is famous for doing good advertising. How do you keep the standard high? I mean, how do you kind of make sure that everything that goes out is, is of the right quality? I mean, we, we work with people who are likely competitive, which is good, or probably a bit more than that, hopefully very competitive. So one, there is a bit about even internally, you know, whilst people support other teams, people want to do the best work. That's it. We also believe that great creative delivers great results. So we do believe in that. And we've seen that. So you're right. We have a history of delivering great work. I'd say take Guinness. Guinness has a, an astonishing history globally of amazing work, which we know delivers great results and has won many FEs, many awards at Cannes, et cetera. So, so I think it is a piece of making sure we've got the right work, keeping that tradition going. I would say, actually, Guinness is a great example. When you work on Guinness, you have a responsibility to almost, you know, as someone hands the baton onto you to continue to deliver great work. Now, great work, which is relevant for now in the right format, doesn't have to be the latest 30-second ad or whatever it might be, but brilliant work. So I think it's, it's about, it's a responsibility it's about taking it on, but uh, and then we support people. But yeah, we know that it, it works, so we 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 just make sure the teams are developing great work. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing I should um, have to say: work with great partners, and we work with great partners. And I think understanding how to get great work out of our partners, uh, we have brilliant people we work with, uh, and knowing how to get their get great work out. We often say in Diageo, actually, we're quite whilst we have great processes like Diageo brand building. 
relationship building is so important as well. And that ability to work with great people and work with them to get to great results is important. Yeah, it makes yeah. complete sense. Yeah. Well, we're talking about Guinness. If you had to pick a favourite campaign over the, over the years, do you have a favourite Guinness campaign? Well, I talk, stuff I've been really involved with. I mean, back to, Surfer was amazing back in, back in the day. Uh, this has been so great. Everything comes to those who wait was, was extraordinary. I was lucky to be joining the European business as the CMO at the time when we did Sapers which was the, uh, the, the guys in the Congo, basically, so the, who get very who get dressed up, fantastic bit of work, really, really works. And it was about how they got dressed up, their passion, their joy of life. And the, the campaign at the time was Made of More. So the work was all about Made of More. Uh, and that was a great campaign because these guys really were Made of More and they were just characters and highlighting their extraordinary sort of uh, lives and what they did and how they sort of brought colour and life to everyone around them was really amazing. So that was a great bit of work. I think we did some great work um, Guinness has got a big platform on rugby and the guys in Europe are doing some fantastic work at the moment on it. And they've done some fantastic, actually, work as we came out of COVID. I think some of the work we did are actually around the time of the Rugby World Cup in 2015, where we highlighted Gareth Thomas was really good as well as he came out as the first really yeah. sort of, you know, yeah. gay rugby player. Uh, and that was amazing and links to all the work, again, we do in diversity. So, so you know, really always... With Guinness, you've got a license to, to push the boundaries a little bit, uh, and I say a responsibility. Yeah. I mean, talking of diversity, actually, one, one of my favourite ads, and I don't know how many markets this ran in, was wheelchair basketball. Right, yeah. And it was, it's just the most moving film, isn't it, where you've got these, these guys in wheelchairs, and, of course, what you don't realise is actually one of them's disabled, the rest are his mates, and they just want to you know, play the game the way he does. And then, you know, the big reveal when you realise they all get up out of their chairs and they're going to go for a Guinness with their mate is, is amazing. I mean, it scored five star on the, on the System 1 database. It's brilliant. No, it did, it, it did really well. I think it's interesting, actually, as we look at diversity at the moment, we're doing a lot of work around disability, making sure that we are, obviously, as a corporation, we are very open for everyone, basically. So we want to make sure that our organisation reflects society. And again, within that, very much within disability. But if you talk to actually the disabled community, they have a slightly different take on it, actually. And I don't think we do that ad now because actually in terms of how the people are supporting and stuff like that. So I'd say the insight and the way the world's moved on in the last 10 years, whilst it had a degree of effect at the time, I think we would do we would do it quite differently now. That's very, very, and, yeah. a, and a good reason. And, to we, and, we, and we've gone and talked yeah. to yeah. Uh, uh, people with disability about it and understood more about it. So had its moment, but like anything, the world's moved on and how we understand the world and the conversations you have around diversity uh, evolve. Um, sticking with Guinness, actually, uh, and another thing that um, came up on the System 1 test actually last year, I'm not sure it was digital out of home, but it had surfboards, a kind of black black surfboards yeah. with the white tops. And um, I, I can't remember who, someone on LinkedIn said, um, oh, they should have put the harp on the, on the surfboard. And um, anyway, because system one, because we can test, you know, test stuff really quickly. I actually, someone mocked up, you know, the, the without the surfboard, sorry, with the surf, surfboard without the harp and surfboard with the harp. And you kind of think, well, what difference does that make? It was amazing because the difference in our star rating was a whole star difference. Really? But what was really fascinating about it, and, and I did, did a post on it and wrote, wrote, wrote an article about it, was that, the one with the harp, because it was, it, was, it was on the beach. You had yeah, the yeah. kind of surfboards yeah, on the remember, beach. Yeah. And that's great. And what the harp did is it connected the occasion. People thought, oh, drinking a cold Guinness on the beach. Wow, that'd be amazing. So in all the qualitative comments, that's what came back. In the one without the, without the harp, it was more esoteric, I suppose, right, and a bit okay, less yeah. obvious. And they just thought, oh, there's Guinness. So it did a branding job. But the other one, like, not only 
kind of improved emotion, but it also set in, which made me think actually that the power of some of the distinctive assets that yeah. you've got as a, well, not just a Guinness brand, but across the portfolio, incredibly powerful, isn't it? No, hugely powerful. That's really interesting, actually. It's good. Um, hopefully the team have got the data I'll on that. Yeah, it's, no, I'd love to see that. It's really interesting. I mean, I think that's a great example of, we talk a lot about key brand ass- assets, so distinctive assets, and they're hugely important. And it's making sure that we really value those and use them. Guinness is a great example. So if you take the pint, you know, black and the white head, how do you use that in, you know, in your iconography on a regular basis? Because it is recognized by consumers. So when we track our distinctive assets, we know that is our pretty much that and the Guinness wordmark and the harp are our three, you know, major distinctive assets. So um, we've had this conversation actually, a brand like Smirnoff actually recently, where I've been on a bit of a sort of push on the, the thing that consumers most know about Smirnoff is what we call the eyebrow, because it's sort of, you know, it's eyebrow shaped, the red eyebrow shape with the Smirnoff word mark in it. So make that very visible for consumers. So again, and actually in the, the latest work we've just put out here on Smirnoff Ice, as we relaunch Smirnoff Ice here, the eyebrow is very, very visible because it is a hugely important distinctive asset that we've built over years. It's on millions and millions of bottles. <laughs> so we need to make it real. You're right. So it's so important. So I think, look, the importance of of distinctive assets and making sure that they are visible. Back to, and then back to basics of physical, mental availability, making sure you put these in front of consumers at the right time, right place, right message, and they see it and it triggers a thought about the brand. is back to the basics, isn't it, what we do? It is. I mean, talking about Smirnoff, actually, one of the things I was going to ask you is, it, when I look at the drinks industry, you seem to have some brands and categories that are sort of everlasting, you know, like whiskey, for example, that just, you know, seems to be eternal. And then there are some fads, and you talked about trends in tequila and stuff like that. And of course, you know, Smirnoff Ice was huge, wasn't it, you know, for a time, or yeah. Bacardi Breezer, you know, to pick another example. Um, what dictates, do you think, the trends and fashions that you see? And, and, and why is it some categories seem to be consistent and other categories seem to sort of come and go? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, m- most of those, I mean, certainly categories have moments. And when categories have moments, it tends to be because they are vibrant, i.e. there's a lot going on in the category. So it tends to be lots of brands, very active, and they are tapped into culture. So they become deeply culturally relevant. That's, I think, the first thing. Second piece is, Nonetheless, there are certain brands in our category, like, you know, tequila's having its moments at the moment and hopefully will continue, but it's been around for a long time. Tequila's been, people have been yeah. drinking tequila in Mexico and, and here for quite a while. Whiskey has been, vodka has been, etc. So these are long-term categories. It's just they, they tend to have a moment when they are active, vibrant, and in culture. So there's a piece about that. I can talk a bit more about that. The other piece is, I think, then good brand management and, and focus and business deciding because we have, as a business, for years, just, uh, made conscious choices that Johnny Walker is a massive priority for us. And therefore, we have kept a focus on it, kept investing on it, put great people on that brand, delivered great work, and grown, the, and grown it. So that's a conscious choice. There are whiskey brands that we own that, frankly, are not as big and not as successful because over the years, we've not managed them as well, or we've consciously decided not to because they've not been as big a priority. So I think there is a bit about, uh, about that. So it's really about... The moment that, you know, you think about when gin boomed in Europe, there was a mix of, you know, if you'd gone back to 2005, everyone would be saying gin and tonic, it's really boring, don't want to do that. It's my mum's drink, my grandfather's drink, all this sort of stuff. And it was served in an awful little wine glass in Europe. It was terrible. It's similar to what people thought about tequila here. It's all about shots and stuff like that. Categories can really evolve, but to evolve, they need to, they need, they need something that needs to shift. And it's normally a cultural thing. It'd be about, 
bartenders getting behind it. It's about changing the serve. It's about a drink that gets into culture. It's about celebrities going, being seen with it, drinking that, getting behind it. And, you know, this applies yeah, in other categories. Yeah. It's all that stuff, basically. The thing, the thing I loved about gin, actually, was, was not necessarily what happened in the UK, which was impressive, but in Spain, where they suddenly started drinking gin out of these enormous goblets and they literally would fill the entire goblet full of ice. And it just created theatre. And it seems that the kind of theatre and the way things are served is particularly important in this category. Well, that was where the whole gin revival, which then went into GB and the rest of Europe and parts of the world, didn't quite hit here because, kind of, tequila and whiskey happened here. Um, was It started in, in Spain and it was Ferran Adria of El Bulli, who was the one who put it actually gin into the big copa glass, which is a bit like a big brandy glass, tons of ice, put it all in there, gin. Actually, he was partnering with Fevertree, who obviously done a brilliant yeah. job of building their brand, and then put all the kind of the, whatever whatever your favorite garnish is, but, you know, and often a lot of garnish in there. And you got this amazing, so I remember going to Spain in 2009, it must have been, and having my first big, you know, copa glass, and it was like a fishbowl of gin. Yeah. It was amazing. And actually, I then went to run gin, vodka, and rum globally. And we went to a lot of the markets. I remember talking with the GB team. And, and it was like, literally, we produced a lot of those glasses and we just put them into the GB trade. Some of our competitors did. And initially, there was this pushback, which was, it'll never work. These glasses are too big. And actually, they weren't as big as those original ones. And they won't work in dishwashers in a pub. I mean, literally, as simple as that. Fast forward to 2014-15, any decent pub you went to, so any sort of you know cool pub in London, Manchester, wherever it would be, you know, you'd have, you'd be served a proper gin. So absolutely, the serve in culture suddenly became cool. Behavioural economics, people start doing it. So all the stuff around, you know, don't like tonic, because gin was polarising and tonic was polarising, but suddenly you took something that in theory was polarising and made it taste and look great. And then the other thing is, of course, that hit when Instagram became big. So suddenly, you know, the, the importance of beautiful drinks. So when we did pink gin, so if you think about gin was becoming really big and everyone was drinking gin and tonic, but there were still some people who go, I, I kind of like it because everyone does it and it's kind of cool. But it's still, is it my favourite, favourite drink? So suddenly, especially for sort of legal drinking age plus 20-something sort of females especially, and, you know, so the, the pink gin was a, an amazing success because actually it took gin, made it slightly easier to drink for people, and it just looked beautiful. It did, didn't it? The looks yeah. were a big part of that, wasn't amazing. it? It's yeah. funny, actually, talking about in-bar insights, actually yeah. pivoting a little bit to soft drinks, like so I worked most of my career in soft drinks. A fascinating insight on J2O actually, because because J2O is a brand that um, is kind of juice brand, but it was in a it was it was inspired by uh, Two Dogs or Hooch at the time. The idea was, what if you put a soft drink in a you know kind of a premium packaged spirit packaging and make it cool for kids? Sort of thing was broadly the idea. But I remember one of the one of the reactions from the bars was you've made it the bottle slightly too big because the glassware was two fifty mil and the bottle was two seventy five mil. But it was genius because they had to give the bottle to the person drinking. So rather than just, with soft drinks, it's, it's, it's you know, probably the third most important thing. You've got the alcohol, then you've got food, then soft drinks is a distant third, you know. So most of it is like cracked open like a Coke, thrown away, you never ever get to see the brand. Whereas in this one, you know, bartenders were forced to hand over. So suddenly you went, oh, you're drinking something else. And, and that was actually one of the insights that actually started the... That's know, interesting. So, yeah, so literally bottle on the table, so you see yeah, it again. Yeah. That's so what was, a, yeah. what was a problem, you know, from a bartender point of view, like you say about dishwashers, turned into an advantage for the brand. Yeah, that's so, amazing. Yeah, yeah that's that was a little, uh, little known thing. Talking about fashion as well, one thing I notice in particularly in this, in, in this market is... The role of celebrities. So we talked about gin, you know, Ryan Reynolds with Aviation Gin. Why are celebrities being used so much for, you know, for marketing? 
Well, celebrities are, are being used a lot because I think they, they have a lot of influence. I mean, it's as simple as that. You know, when we talk about influencers, you know, and how do brands reach, you know, different consumer groups? One way is to talk to influencers who can access whatever consumer group you want to get to. It's as simple as that. And, you know, some celebrities have, have broad reach. Um, so if you're thinking with us, if we go back to that 2007, eight, actually, when we partnered with, with Sean Combs, with Diddy, who actually I've got a meeting with today, um, on Ciroc, you know, he was almost one of the first in, in the spirits world to really get behind a brand, really drive it, put it out there, talk about the brand with, you know, a broad consumer group and basically make it very successful. In, in spirits as well, I think, so that was a, a bit of a model. I think what happened is consumers saw that it was a, an interesting category. It's kind of, a, for many people, an attractive category. It's a very social category. So I think a lot of influencers enjoy, if they, you know, if they, if they are in the category, they enjoy being part of it. Uh, and they can see that they can build brands. So it has been successful. So clearly yeah. what, you know, George and Randy did in with Casamigos, uh, you know, has been highly successful. And that's one of the reasons we, we bought that brand, you know, similar with Ryan Reynolds and, and Aviation. And there's many other success stories as well. But it is just the fact that the consumers have reach and influence. You have to do everything else. When they do it, it's still important. You've got to be, you've got to get your distribution right. You've got to be in other places. You've got to land all the right brand messages and stuff. But, you know, but they have, they have influence. Yeah. No, they do, don't they? Um, one thing you mentioned earlier, actually, is, is investment in brands, obviously high margin business, Diageo. I think anyone looking into the business is always very envious of the amount of investment you put behind brand building and the long-term view you take. Is that a conscious decision by the business to kind of take a, a, broader, a broader view? And, and, and how do you build the argument for kind of investing in marketing? Yeah, no, it is a conscious decision. Look, we've been lucky. We have our leaders, if you take Ivan or Sir Ivan, who's our outgoing CEO, who's done a fabulous job for the last 10 years, and Deborah, who's our incoming CEO. They're brand builders. They believe in brand building. They believe in investing behind our brands. What they want to know is we're investing well behind our brands, but they understand that the way that we will grow our business is about taking the right portfolio of brands, the right brands, and doing great work behind them to grow them, basically. And that's it. So we fund them. And to do that, you know you have to, you need the right amount of money to reach your consumers. It's as simple as that. So if I went back a few years, in some cases, yeah, some of our brands were underfunded. And then if you come back to the basics of brand building, if you're not reaching the right amount of consumers with the right message, and you're not as physically and mentally available, back to those basics, then it's going to be harder for you, simple as that. So I think we did a pretty good job, I think, internally of sort of selling the argument for why more investment works. I mean, at a really basic level, and all the CMOs and marketers listening on this will get it, is, you know, if you're erratic, if you're not pretty much on all year round in most of your big brands and you lose a period where you just don't become top of mind anymore with consumers, we all know consumers have repertoires. We all know that. Consumers have other choices. So we're not arrogant enough to know that the only whiskey that anyone's going to buy is Johnny Walker or Bullet or anything. You know, people have repertoires. These are active categories. So you have to keep your brands relevant and current and present. But one of the challenges, because obviously you're a portfolio business, how do you decide which brands get investment and how do you avoid the innovator's dilemma as well? So, you know, the idea that if you, you know, if you're trying to innovate uh, as a big business, it, it, you know, it's harder to do that because obviously you've got big brands to focus on. So how do you get that balance between, I guess, where you invest, but also how do you nurture innovation in a, con- you know, where you've got mega brands that are, you know, got a lot of money behind them? Yeah. So first thing is we, you, you, you have a portfolio strategy so at a very macro level for us. You go, where do you want to participate? What are the big, literally, what are the big trends? If it's like wellness, you know, looking after yourself, as I said, in, indulgence, I meant to luxury. There's, you know, you start with the big trends and then you go down to what are the hot categories? So tequila, whiskey, et cetera. So you sort of start to make some natural prioritization choices. And then within that, you start to say, what are the brands? How do you prioritize within the brands? Where are the brands in their stage of development and what do they need? And actually a lot of that will come down to how big is the brand? So what level of 
penetration have you got? So have you got like 2 million consumers? Have you got five? Have you got 20? Have you got 40 million? So looking at almost what the brand needs and what you need to do to grow that brand. Because as we all know, the, the best way to grow a brand is just get more consumers in. As simple as that, it's drive penetration. Um, so you know how to reach more consumers. So we look at it at a trend category level. Um, as we do our planning process, we start by looking at trends. We do a sort of broader piece. We do category strategies, look at how we want to participate. And then we look at all of our brands and basically a few of us pull together a portfolio strategy. So we'll look at, we'll make sure that we're investing, call it ahead or in the right way behind the really hot brands, the hot categories or smaller brands in those categories, which we want, where we want to get them, you know, to accelerate them. And then we'll look at maybe some of our big brands where we're not expecting as much growth, but we need to make sure we've got the right level of plans which can deliver against those. So, and then it's balancing small, medium and long, you know, brands. What are we doing for the smaller brands, which we know, are going to be the medium brands and then the bigger brands of the future and making sure they're set up for success. Well, I think that's a challenge, balancing really, short and long, isn't it, in a way? Really important, because and, it's very easy yeah. to just, a lot of the smaller brands, just keep them ticking along and not actually accelerating them. And then one day you'll wake up with a load of big brands. And, and the way that our business and many businesses grow is you need things to be taking off. You need the next thing. So back to innovation. It could be something in, something in innovation. It could be a new thing on Crown Royal, a new thing on Don Julio. It could be a, it could be a new brand. But you do need things which are going to accelerate. Our business has benefited from tremendous growth in uh, our whiskey brands and our tequila brands. But you've always got to be thinking, what's the next thing that's going to come through in the next two, three, four, five years? And you've got to be setting that up for success. So how do you do that? Do, do, you, do you launch a range of things, see which one seems to work and then back them? Or how do you make those decisions on what to you know, back for growth? It's a blend of stuff. You, I mean, so at a category level, you'll look at the category, you'll say, what's where are we participating? So you'll segment the category in different ways. One, you'll segment it. You do a classic kind of consumer segmentation. You'll do it and you say, well, you know, we might be in a traditional, we might do a more modern or more progressive, whatever, whatever, you know, nice segmentation that the, the, the team will come up with. So you'll look at that and you go, well, we've got an opportunity in this segment. Then at a basic level, you look at price pointing and you'll go, well, we compete well in 20 to 30 and 40 to 50, but maybe there's some opportunities there. So you look at the categories and you write an opportunity and, and you say, look, we're big here, we're there, we need to grow here. So how do we get into this space? And then that's down to you either innovate, you acquire, whatever. And that helps to shape our, our future strategies. So you look at those areas. So that's, that's how, we, how we approach it, basically. And, then, and, and, and it works in different ways as well. It, each brand will also look at it its, itself and have an innovation strategy. So what's the role that innovation plays for that brand and what you, can you do? Um, you need to build your base because the base is really important. We're not an obsolescent business. We don't sort of, you know, we don't have the latest edition, which we, and we throw the old one out. That doesn't, that's not what we are. So you need to know the role of innovation, but a big piece is really looking at the, the, the consumer landscape, the opportunities, the categories we operate in, and then deciding where we want to participate. And then frankly, making choices, then you have to make choices about, and in some cases it may be, you go, we've got a lovely little brand in whatever, a whiskey brand. We're going to just keep it ticking along. And it may be just regionally is really important as well, here or wherever. We may say we're just going to have this focused on two states for the next year, keep it growing, learn, you know, learn about it, validate the growth drivers, make sure we're doing it. And if we start to get some success, then we'll put more money in in two years and a bit more in three and then you never know, it might hit a tipping point and then off you go. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I'd love to round up actually by asking you a couple of questions on your biggest success and your biggest failure. And, and just, just for fun, I'll, 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 while you think, I'll, I'll tell you my, uh, well, my biggest failure, I'll put that in quotes, uh, and a brand that we share actually, Di Sarono Amareto. But um, I was working on Di Sarono. This must be about the 2002 it, and, and, the, and the timing is super important. It just goes to show how important timing is. Now, you'll know this, of course, because, you know, you manage the brand as well. 
Tisserone has got a very distinctive smell, you know, and, uh, you know, it's one of those love it and hate it brands, isn't it? You've got absolute uh, people that adore that kind of almondy, you know, almondy flavour and smell and people that just can't stand it sort of thing. And I, I, came, I came up with an idea that, because Christmas is critical to liqueurs, isn't it? I mean, it literally is, you know, 80% of all, all the annual sales went through in December. And I had this idea. We had the big campaign, out of home campaign in London. We're doing some sampling in bars. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I took over the underground, the, the four biggest stations, right? And what I decided to do was basically, you know, like you go into a, a supermarket or a grocer store over here and you can smell the bread. Yeah. And it just, it just like, oh, lovely. It, it makes you go to the bakery. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to actually pump the smell of almonds in the underground, you see, so everyone gets this waft. And then as you go down the escalator, it's got De Serono adverts. And I even employ people to give out the little mini 50 mil bottles when, when you go through. They get their cute, aren't they? A little, yeah. little kind of square bottle. Now, they say timing is everything and everything is timing because this was as we're about to go to war with Iraq and there was ma- you know, all the talk of weapons of mass destruction, right? And the campaign went live on a Monday morning at nine o'clock. The same morning, the Sun newspaper ran a headline which warned the public to be vigilant for a possible terrorist attack. The number one threat to the UK on the front page of the Sun was a cyanide attack in the underground. And the way you, way you spot cyanide, the smell of almonds. No. Yes. <laughs> so I was, I was at a trade show, right, where, when this happened. So I hadn't got my phone on. And then by lunchtime, my phone went mad. With, and it was like... Hi, it's so-and-so from the Daily Mail, so-and-so from the Times. I mean, literally every journalist was phoning me up. And what's your statement? What are you going to do? So we obviously had to, you know... Well, I, I say cancel the campaign. It's funny how these things work because it actually made the front page of the main newspaper in Italy, right? right. And it went, one and a half million pound campaign goes down the drain sort of thing. or goes down the tube. Actually, all I had to do was just turn off the centimetres that were in the underground. The rest of the campaign was absolutely fine, but, but it just got a life of its own. And um, that weekend... Uh, I was the subject of Have I Got News For You. Remember the game show where you had to go, what's the story? And they, they kind of like, you know, they, they had, uh, I was the topic. And then in the uh, Independent, there was a whole page article about when marketing goes wrong. And I was, li- I was literally the case study of like, you know, you know, of it all going wrong, basically. Producer James, by the way, anyone listening and watching that wants to know, Producer James has pulled up the, uh, the quote. So basically, I, I, I said... Um, Oh, that was funny as well. Oh, by the way, sorry. In the Sunday Times, right, they have this, they, they used to have this. I can't beat this, by the way. <laughs> this, is, this is called, but I'm just giving you time here. To, well, who's got the most epic failure? But in the Sunday Times, they used to have this thing called the, the verbatim, the, the, the quote of the week, right? They had a quote from JFK, they had a quote from Tony Blair, and then they quote from me. <laughs> and the quote was, um, I don't think this is the same quote, but it's something like, um, while we're disappointed that, you know, the consumers won't enjoy the wonderful, you know, aroma of almonds in the underground, clearly security is more important than marketing. <laughs> and of course, I didn't write the quote, our PR you know, agency quickly got something out there. But it, anyway, that quote is still up in my downstairs toilet at home, proudly framed, you know. But the, but the lovely end to it is um, we saw sales that Christmas I was say, how do you hit, hit a record. You put it really well. Yeah, it's like, no it? PR is bad PR, but that's, uh, a, that's, that's, that's my funny sort oh, my of... Um, I can't... Uh, I I think I can match that. I once, I really, that's a brilliant story. That's just extraordinary timing. Isn't I know, it? I, I know. Mean, I yeah. mean, unbelievable. Well, everyone. I, by the way, I never knew that uh, cyanide smelled like almonds well, either. Well, I didn't know. Clearly. I was, I was, I don't know where I was in the world then when you did that. But I, uh, anyway, I had one where I was, this is back in the UK actually, and uh, I was launching uh, an, a frozen pouch ice drink, and it was meant to be for the summer. 
And the whole idea was it was like this drink and uh, it, was a, it was a drink, sort of basically frozen pouches. It was going to be with Smirnoff. You'd sort of get this and it was like freeze crush and suck it, basically. You'd do it and you'd be able to dance, you know, have this pouch and suck it on the dance floor and it'd be like really cool. It was a time when all the raving was going on yeah. and clubs, stuff like that. So it was a sort of, you know, cool way of doing it without people participating in other areas, which were uh, uh, less good for you, shall we say. <laughs> anyway, so, so the idea was there. Anyway, so we tried to get it right. And it's one of the joys of, uh, of supply, of uh, innovation is working with supply and getting, I mean, our supply people are great to be very clear. But anyway, the bottom, bottom line is we completely missed the summer. We ended up, uh, this, it was being manufactured in, in Italy. The Itali- we had all sorts of production issues. The Italians, they went on holidays, they do in, you know, love them, back to, you know, in, in August, which now most people do. Anyway, we ended up with this stuff in October, testing it in Leeds, in October, <laughs> when it was miserable, absolutely freezing, and, and it was absolutely freezing, <laughs> totally missed the summer. We had all we had a load of this stuff. Okay, we had a load more than we knew what to do with, and then it, and we sort of had like freeze, crush, and suck it, which is probably you know, and so we probably shouldn't be anyway. The damn things were they were rock hard, so you you couldn't even. So they, you took them out of the freezer. They were like, and then they were so icy they'd stick to your hands. Then then we had to start to produce gloves that you could hold on. That you could hold on to these things. And anyway, we ended up bidding the whole lot. Oh <laughs> was, wow! And that was it. So that was a, that was a, one of those innovations which was well, you know, the idea was good. It was like I don't know. They, back to my point at the start, was there an insight? I don't know. I yeah. think that might be product driven and something yeah, like that. Yeah, maybe, definitely. Maybe just insight. because you can doesn't. Just because you can, yeah. Is yeah. That, do people really want frozen drinks in their hands? In, in I, their I always wonder whether I thought the, the pound store model is yeah. genius because I think basically going to pound stores and you see things that you don't see anywhere else, yeah. and I reckon it's basically all that. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. It's, it's all the stuff that didn't I work. Think some of it is. Where someone's got a lot of stock in their warehouse, yeah. what do we do with this? And no, they sell it for it. No, we, they I mean, sell it for like almost nothing. No, I mean, sometimes when we wait yeah. candidly, when we have stuff which isn't quite as successful or because you know we'll we'll find different channels to you know because yeah. you want people to sell it and normally it's, it's going to be good so yeah you know, yeah exactly true. there you go anyway, there you there go there you if go. you want to find an obscure thing yeah, that, you know. i'd forgotten about that until you, tr- you triggered a thought but yeah <laughs> well it, you, uh, they always say end on a high yeah. of course so um what do you, as you look back on your career what are you most proud of i think i'm most proud of um a few things i i mean everywhere i've been i've loved it i've been i've been really lucky and the businesses have been great so i'm proud of sort of leaving normally leaving businesses and going you know, I, I touched on Guinness, you know, the, I, my five years in Europe were amazing. We went from a, a minus five business to a plus five business and we did some great work. I, you know, look back very fondly on what we did on gin and Guinness, especially and those brands there were great. I had an amazing time in Australia years ago and we had a lot of fun with brands like Bundy and stuff like that. We're down there, which was which is awesome. And living down there was amazing. I'm really proud of what we've done here in North America uh, over the last five years and, and the growth we've, we've put on a lot of growth to the business uh, since I've been here. And I'm really proud of that and what the, what some of the work we're doing on the brands. So if I go through, you know, I, I look back, I feel very privileged and lucky to have been able to work in fantastic markets and different roles around the world and be part of hopefully growing the brands and, you know, working on some amazing brands and doing some good work on them as well. Great. So, Brilliant. you know, so very good. Very lucky. I noticed you dropped some conversation earlier, meeting with Sean Coombs. Yes, exactly. That, yeah, yeah. That, that can't be a, a bad, uh, no, bad way to spend met, your day. I've met a lot of, uh, lot of, a lot of interesting people, people in your time. No, we yeah. still work with Sean on 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 uh, on Ciroc, and yeah, he's, he's, uh, we've got to meet him this afternoon to talk about the what next. Amazing. Uh, so, yeah, so who, who's, who was the most surprisingly... He reinvents himself, actually. He really does. Really, yeah. Yeah. Who's the most surprisingly nice celebrity that you've met? That you thought, oh, that's oh. unfair too. They're, they're all, no. <laughs> you, can't, you can't be drawn on that, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I always think it's funny when you meet celebrities, how they differ to their personas, you know. I think what you realise with working with celebrities, and I, I can say this, is what, what's amazing, you know, they are brands, you know, they yeah. are, they, and yeah. what they are doing is they build their brands. 
brilliantly and they're very conscious of their brand and how it is back to what I said about Sean how he looks at who he is who he is talking to who he communicates to how yeah. he reinvents himself and I think yeah. there's a lesson for all of us yeah. as we build brands yeah. being very conscious about who you are being very conscious about as a celebrity where you are in, literally in your life stage and how relevant mm. you are and stuff yeah. like that So I mean I found that yeah. I, I, I sponsored Anthony Joshua when I was working on LucasAid right. yeah. and he's I was so impressed because every time that we did something together, he would remember my name. He'd remember the fact I had young kids. And yeah. he would, I mean, if, if we were at a press release or something, he'd go, John, why aren't you in this photo? You know, come on up. And, that's, yeah. and I was just like, there are thousands of people he must meet. I mean, I wasn't even day-to-day. -day, you know, I was yeah. kind of one step removed from the negotiations and the organization sort of thing. But his ability to make you feel special and, um, and remember your business and what you're trying to do. And, I remember on LucasAid, actually, we had an X number of days a year that we kind of agreed with them. And we were going to start this new kind of made-to-move campaign, which is about inspiring people to exercise. And I think on the day that we launched, we just had this idea, well, what if he just tweets to say, join me for a run in my local park or whatever? And he said, yeah, fine. And he was just very happy to kind of go way beyond that's whatever great. was in the contract. Or so we've had team meetings, he'd, you know, turn up and Amazing. we'd do a workout with him or yeah, something. We did a boxer size class, actually, and set a record for the most number of people doing a boxer size at the same time. Yeah. So I think it's just all those kind of things. It's just great, the over yeah. and above relationship. Going. It's amazing. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's really nice, isn't it, when you work with celebrities and realise, yeah. you know, they, they they care a lot. And they do. But, they also, yeah. but, but it was the fact he knew his brand, yeah. he even knew his tone of voice, that he was yeah. very positive, you know, in boxing, you know, particularly as a boxer, he very cared about people, cared about the story and authenticity and all that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. it's, it's quite that's nice. It's really nice, yeah, that's yeah. great. No, they do. That's true. That's great. Well, have that's a wonderful true. meeting with Peter. Thank He's you. sending my love. Cheers, John. Yeah, will do. Thanks definitely. for coming on. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. It's a great Thanks, chat. Thanks Cheers. a lot. Cheers. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening or watching to the Uncensored CMO. It's great to have you with me. If you enjoyed that and you never want to miss an episode again, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or if you're on YouTube, please do hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to get in contact with me, please do. I'm on Twitter at Uncensored CMO over at LinkedIn under John Evans. Thank you for joining and I'll see you next time.